0: This afternoon, I may proclaim to you God's Word as we summarize it and confess it in Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we'll read that with you now, where we confess the following. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No. On the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, for there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good? and inclined to all evil, yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. After the sermon, we'll respond together by singing from Psalm 141. Lens 1, 3, and 7. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 3 begins with a, with a very loaded question, doesn't it? Did God create man so wicked and perverse? The question implies, of course, that we understand that we are wicked and perverse that this, this dwells in the hearts of, of men and women and boys and girls everywhere. We confess that this is true. We know this is true when you look around, when you listen to the news, you hear reports of horrible things in the world, you realize how corrupt this world is, but when you honestly look into your own heart, you also have to admit that this wickedness and perversion lies there too. In fact, things are so bad that we confess in Lord's Day 2 that I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And with question 8, we confess we're totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. That's that's painful to confess. And reading through chapter 3 of Genesis, that's painful reading, isn't it? We find out there that how our first parents fell into sin. It's... It's a story of disaster, isn't it? But it's not the whole story because God writes more into the story. While the perfection of God's creation lasted only for a short while, there is also grace to be found because God writes the history of redemption. And that's a story that's loaded with grace. Because the moment our first parents rebelled, they were met with compassion and grace. And in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our fallen nature, we too are met by God's compassion and grace. So I've summarized the sermon this way. We confess that God's grace shines through our rebellion and corruption. We'll consider what God intended us to be, what we became, and what God is restoring us to. So I mentioned already, we of course we know that there is something wrong with the, us and with the world, right? We already confess we're not a in Lord's day too, we're not able to keep the law of God. We recognize in ourselves the constant battle between good and evil, between our old sinful nature and the new nature that we have in Christ, and we want to do what is right while struggling against what is wrong. And of course, it's natural to ask the question, how did things come to be this way? If things are really this bad, how did that happen? Right? If something's wrong, we want to know. Sometimes we even, we even want to know whose fault it is. And our instinct, then, is to point the finger. If someone is to blame, right, it's not me. Right? It's always somebody else's fault. It's my neighbor's fault, or, or it's God's fault. That's where this question in Lord's Day three comes from. It, it and doesn't this tendency already prove that question and answer five is correct, congregation? Right, we are inclined by nature to point the finger. And that's proof that we are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. That's what our first parents did too. Adam, God said to Adam, "Where are you? How do you know that you are naked?" And he said, the woman you gave me, she gave me to eat. And then God said to Eve, well, what did you do? Well, the serpent deceived me. So we're all inclined to be this way. It's in our nature. It's in human nature to accuse God of being the author and the source of sin and evil. So it's a good thing that we don't skip this question. It's part of the misery in which we live, that people are inclined to blame God. But congregation, that attitude also exists among us, even though we are children of God and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we often make excuses for ourselves too, don't we? Or, I'm only human. Don't make, I I, I didn't make myself this way, or you can't expect me to to act like an angel. We're We're good at making excuses, that's just the way I am. But that's simply another way of pointing the finger at God for the things that are wrong in this life. And that's why this question in Lord's Day 3 is so important, because it eliminates that kind of thinking. It clearly teaches God is not at fault. And it points at how things were in the beginning. Here we confess that we were created in God's image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so what does that mean? Well, that means to be created in God's image has to do with man's nature reflecting the nature of God. And the word righteousness, that's an important word throughout Scripture. You think especially of how Paul uses that word so often in the book of Romans. In that letter, Paul is constantly speaking about unrighteous people being made righteous. In Romans 1.17, for example, he writes that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed... From faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we were created to live in true righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, in this big word, you find the small word, right. That reminds us that being righteous is about being right with God. When you are righteous, it means that God is pleased with you. It means there's nothing that in you that offends him. It means that He accepts you in His holy presence. You're allowed to walk with Him and talk with Him. And in Lord's Day 3, we confess this also means that we rightly know God, our Creator, that we heartily love Him and live with Him in eternal blessedness. In the Canons of Dort, we confess it this way, that in the beginning man was adorned in his mind with a true and wholesome knowledge of his Creator. His will and his heart were upright, his affections pure. They were in line with God, with what God was thinking, what God wanted. And in the Belgian Confession, Article 14, we confess that God created us so that we could conform our will to his will in every respect. And Paul makes the same point in Romans 1. As, he's, as he is making a case there for the gospel... He writes about how things should be and how God intended things to be. God intended for us to know him, to love him, and to live with him forever. Of all God's creatures, we alone were created to have this special relationship with the creator. It must have been wonderful to be perfect. You ever think about that? When Adam and Eve lived in the garden before the fall into sin they never raised their voices in anger never got frustrated they lived in perfect harmony they had good communication open communication with God and one another they were not limited by impure thoughts we can't even imagine what that's like they could truly love God with all their heart soul and mind They were able to fulfill the law of love. They had nothing to fear from God or from his creation. They weren't bothered by by frost or heat. They didn't have to be afraid of lions or tigers or poisonous spiders. They lived in perfect harmony with their creator and with creation and with one another. They had a free and perfect will. They could choose to serve God. They They were motivated by perfect love. They loved God freely and willingly. That's how God created mankind, not as robots, but as free creatures with responsibilities, with potential. And he gave them absolutely everything and even more in order to live this way. They had a perfect home. They had a palace called the Garden of Eden, you could say. A place where God had given them everything that they needed. And we should keep in mind that this garden was not some stagnant place. The garden is is something that needs to grow. It, It needs to be developed. It needs care and attention. And that's exactly what God wanted Adam and Eve to do. They were to work in the garden. They were to make it their home. And they were to fill the earth with children. And as they did so, they had to expand the garden so that there was a place for all these children to live. And so they were to develop all the potential of God's good creation. What a beautiful task. Created in the image of God, commissioned to do His work and His will on earth. They had a glorious future ahead of them. They They had so much to look forward to. The prospect of living with and working for God forever. And God had given them this this glorious position that we, we sang about in Psalm 8. A little lower than the heavenly beings, but crowned with glory and honor. Mankind was the crown of God's creation. With privileges beyond compare. And we can only get glimpses of this perfection. And the Bible only gives us glimpses as well as of what it will be like When God restores all things, no more tears, no more war, no more strife, the dwelling of God will be with mankind, Revelation chapter 21, it makes us realize a little bit of, of the preciousness that we have lost. We can only try to imagine what we've lost since we live in a far different reality today. We became something that God did not intend for us to be. That's the second point. Lord's Day 3, we ask the question, where then did this depraved nature come from? And the answer, once again, takes us to the beginning. My depraved nature comes from the fall and disobedience of my first parents. And note the personal connection there. It's a family problem. In Belgian Confession, Article 15, we, we confess that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has spread through the whole human race, It's a hereditary evil, we confess there, that infects even infants in their mother's womb. And so we can never say, well, that's what Adam and Eve did, so it's not my problem, it doesn't affect me, God cannot hold me accountable for what they did thousands of years ago, that's not fair. And so we need to ask then, where does the catechism get this question and answer from? Where is this concept of original sin to be found? Well, we need to start, again, at the beginning. In Genesis 3.20, Adam calls his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all living. That implies, then, of course, that Adam would be the father of all living. You see, congregation, the Bible doesn't teach us that God treats us simply as individuals. The Word of God emphasizes the bond that humans have as a family. And we cannot escape the fact that the first parents of this family rebelled against God. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 explains it this way, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then in verse 18 of that same chapter, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So you see, The Bible doesn't simply speak only of an act of individual sin. God had made a covenant with the first parents of the human race. And the promises of that covenant included the promise of death for disobedience. And that extended to all the descendants of Adam and Eve. And that's why the disobedience of those first parents also extends to all of us. In Adam we have all sinned. And so we deserve the same punishment. Again, there is, there is some mystery to this. God, in his sovereign good pleasure, counts us in with the sin of our first parents. And perhaps we cannot fully understand that, but if we accept the Bible as God's word, then this is how the Bible explains it. And so we confess that our nature is, is so corrupt that we are all, without exception, conceived and born in sin. As David writes in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin did my mother conceive me. So the rebellious nature of our first parents has been passed down to each one of us. Adam's nature is our nature. His sin is our sin. His rebellion, our rebellion. His betrayal, our betrayal. And why is this so serious? Why is God so angry even with original sin? Well, in Article 15 of the Belgian Confession, we refer to that article again, we confess that since this original sin produces in us all sorts of sin, it is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn the whole human race. You see, congregation, life that is not lived in complete dedication to God is a life that misses the purpose for which it was created, and therefore life devoid of meaning, that's what original sin has done to the human race. It does not honor God. It does not consider the holiness of God. And that should speak to us. Because we can, we can get really upset sometimes about all the evil in the world. But what about when we take time to look into our own hearts? We're disturbed by all the evil around us. But what should disturb us the most is that God is not number one in our life. That our life turns around self. That we don't give God the honor and glory that is due to his holy name. Maybe, Maybe it's easier to think about it this way. What do we get excited about? Are we more excited to go to church than to play hockey? Does that excite us? Does going to church make us more excited than thinking about going on vacation? Or a nice game of golf? If we put this all on the on an excitement scale, where would that be? How would that compare? and even in our prayer life are we often not guilty of putting ourselves first before the interests of god and when it comes to our willingness or lack thereof to submit to god's law how often don't we make excuses i can't help the way i am or that that's just the things the way things were when i grew up so Well, that's just the way things are. We're actually not that much different than Adam, right? The woman you gave me. Like, when we hear those words, we think, the audacity of Adam to dare to say that to his creator? Really? But finger-pointing and blame-shifting is something we all are good at, isn't it? We have all fallen far from our original condition. We're created to live for God's honor and glory. And yet, by nature, our sinful nature, we want to live for ourselves. And according to Scripture, that's the greatest sin of all. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, that's what he's talking about. That's what he has in mind. When we don't live for him, our life has failed the purpose for which he has created us. And before we think that, well... Maybe there's still something salvageable here. We come to question eight, which is another reality check. We are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. And again, this is no exaggeration. Already before the great flood of Noah's time, God said every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And the flood didn't change that because... After the flood, God said again, The intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. And the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 3, quoting from Psalm 14, writes, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And because of this, the Bible says that we are children of wrath. Maybe you're wondering, is there any good news? Well, there certainly is, congregation. But we need to understand the depth of our fall and come to grips with the reality of our depravity before we can begin to appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. After all, we already confess in Lord's Day 1 that the first thing we need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort is to know how great our sin and misery is. And so there is comfort here in Lord's Day 3 too. Because God is restoring us. And Let me remind you again that we make this confession by faith. It is God's grace. And an unbeliever would never confess Lord's Day 3. That is only the confession that comes from true faith. An unbeliever would give God the blame. Would never want to serve this God. But the believer confesses, by God's grace, I can hold on to this confession in Lord's Day 3. Because my faithful Savior has bought me with his precious blood. So remember to keep that foremost in your mind. Jesus Christ gave his life for me. But he didn't remain in the grave. He rose again. And he proclaims now through his word, you have been freed from the power of the devil. You have been freed from slavery to sin, freed from your misery, and your sins are forgiven. And that's why we confess in Lord's Day 1, therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready to live for him. It is the Spirit of Christ who makes us ready to live for God already today in this life, in the middle of this sin and misery. That's what we confess. That's what we believe. Today, the Spirit is at work in you who believe in Christ, bringing you from death to life, helping you to lay aside that old nature and taking on the new, which is what Paul writes about in Romans 8. There in verses 9 through 11, through his spirit who dwells in you. You see and that's why the Paul the apostle can then also add instructions to the letters that he writes to the churches. You see that in all of Paul's letters first he he explains and expounds the gospel and then he adds instructions. Take Ephesians for example, in Ephesians 4:25 he writes about how Christians must avoid falsehood and speak the truth and And stay away from unwholesome talk. They are to get rid of bitterness and anger. And be compassionate and forgiving one another. And notice the link, right? The Christian has attitudes like God. The Christian reflects Christ, reflects what God is like. And that's why in Ephesians 5, we're instructed, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And that's why then in the following passages we're told husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands, children obey your parents, servants honor your masters, put on the whole armor of God. In this way the spirit equips you to image your God. You see congregation that is what we are being restored to through the Spirit of Christ, restored to this exalted position that we sang about in Psalm 8. Our Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled the instruction and the expectation of Psalm 8. He's done that perfectly and completely. But He also gives you His Holy Spirit so you can fulfill your calling of living in the image of God. And that is our highest calling, to be like Christ. And in the strength of the Holy Spirit, we are able to do this, to begin to do this. As the Catechism says, to begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. And congregation, that is our comfort in this broken and sinful world. A world so full of suffering, so full of needless destruction. So many people being hurt. But the child of God may and can live from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit and begin to reflect that the Lord God reigns over his creation but also in our lives as children of God and yes we long for the day that is coming when we will be perfect when there will be no more sin and misery but in the meantime congregation let us continue to fight the good fight of faith and let us not stop praying for that day and for the help of the holy spirit in our lives amen